word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, speaking to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shutil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn over to the book of Haggai. Um, it's, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're visiting because of, of, of baptisms or, or maybe you just decided to check our church out this morning, I, I just want to say that I'm, I'm glad that you chose uh, to join us uh, today on, on this Lord's Day. Uh, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm a pastor here, and uh, this is a relatively new church. We just sort of launched publicly in this room about a couple years ago, uh, and and this Sunday, today, as you saw earlier, is a very special Sunday for us, and that we're going to be celebrating all that Jesus has done in and through our church over the last couple years, especially uh, in the lives of a few individuals who are going to get baptized later today. I'm super pumped, super excited uh, just to celebrate the, the work of God's grace in the lives of those people. And so we look forward uh, to that later on today. Um, if you uh, did not know about that before you came in here and you didn't RSVP for that, just so you know, uh, I am notorious for over-ordering pizza, uh, and so we still have food for you. So we would love to have you join us in Foothill Ranch after the service uh, today. Uh, but this morning... This morning, we wrap up our teaching series through the great little book of Haggai, one of the last books in the Old Testament. And the driving force behind this little book is, is this question, what does it look like to really live for the kingdom of God? What does it look like to have God's priorities become our priorities? What does it look like when Jesus has truly transformed every area, every facet of our lives where you love God with all your heart, soul, body, mind, strength, you love your neighbor as yourself? What does that look like? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, how has he changed your life? How has he changed your priorities, your behavior, your, your motives? That's what the book of Haggai has sort of taught us about over these last few weeks. And we're going to finish, uh, we're going to finish that book this morning, sort of land that plane by looking at these uh, final verses. So if you wouldn't mind, let's, let's, let's pray for our time together, uh, and then we'll dive into the text. Uh, Lord God, um, we are grateful just to, to be together as, as, as King's Cross Church, as a family uh, with, with friends and with extended family, uh, for those of us celebrating baptism this morning. And um, Lord, it's just a reminder and a testament and declaration that you change lives. 
And so we thank you this morning for an opportunity to to celebrate the work of Jesus in in our lives like we do every Sunday. And we are uh, thankful for this word that you set aside for us in the book of Haggai. And I ask, Lord, that the words that I preach, the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, some of you in this room know that just a few months ago, my five-year-old daughter underwent uh, open-heart surgery. Um, if, and just in case you don't know, she's doing great. Uh, everything went like as better than we could have ever expected. Uh, but after the surgery, um, the nurses did this, 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 this cute thing where they gave her this, this necklace with different beads that would just sort of get added throughout the week uh, while we were there. And each bead had a different color or different shape uh, to represent uh, some new step forward in her progress. So like when she got out of bed for the first time, she got a bead for that. When she did her first lap around the hospital floor for the first time, she got a new bead for that. And the idea is she has this collection of beads to look back on and remember uh, all that, that she did, all that she triumphed through to get through those scary moments. And so she's got this, this necklace now that, that she, uh, she was just showing it to me the other day. She's like, Dad, what's this bead for? What's this bead for? Uh, just, just as an opportunity for her to say, I remember that. I remember what I went through. I remember what I got through. I I get to look back and and see what God has done. Well, throughout the the Old Testament, there are sort of these markers along the way that show us the progress of God's people. But these markers don't so much tell the story of what they accomplished as much as they tell the story of what God accomplished for them. There are markers and stories and characters and promises that that are just littered throughout the Old Testament that God makes throughout uh, the scriptures that sort of serve as this collection of beads, these markers along the way, so that we can look back and see God's faithfulness to his people. How he grew them, how he made them more healthy, how he made them more mature, how he equipped them for the mission and purpose that he sent them on. So I want us to do sort of a brief recap of, of, of all some of those markers we've seen along the way in the book of Haggai. A brief recap, and then we'll, and then we'll sort of bring this thing home, all right? So what we find is that from the moment that, uh, in the beginning of the scriptures, from the moment that sin entered the garden, all throughout the Old Testament, we see that God is relentlessly faithful. And we see that his people are repeatedly faithless. His people are faithless, yet he is faithful. But God, who is rich in mercy, pursues them. God pursues his people. He pursues us. Their rebellion, like how all our hearts are just bent on making much of ourselves and, and, and rather than God, just the, their rebellion and the sin in the world eventually gets God's people enslaved by the Egyptians. And then after 400 years of oppression, God raises up Moses to deliver them from Pharaoh's grip. And what we see is that in, in the Exodus story, God designs this tabernacle for them. 
This tabernacle that served as God's dwelling place among the Israelites as sort of a means of grace for them. This tabernacle sort of came with like this instruction manual for sacrifices and for the priesthood so that his people would know through the tabernacle that no matter how bad things would get out there in the world, that God would be with them. He would tabernacle with them. He would be with them. He would be for them. And no matter how bad things got in here in their hearts, when they fail to live for him, there would always be grace and forgiveness for them. That's what the sacrificial system reminded them of. And so this tabernacle was sort of like a pop-up tent that they would take with them on their travels throughout the exile. Uh, and imagine sort of the, the massive setup and teardown team that they would have for this tabernacle, which just goes to show that there's always a special place in God's kingdom for those who serve on the setup and teardown team. Just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> But eventually, this people, this people, God's people, eventually they multiply. They set up a kingdom and they thrown a shepherd, a descendant of Abraham. His name was David. David, the shepherd boy. You might know him from writing like half of the book of Psalms, the largest book of the Bible. This list of Psalms and poetry was written by King David. And then David's son Solomon builds a temple. The temple was sort of like an upgrade from the old tabernacle because this thing had a foundation. It was immovable. It was in a city. It was in God's city. It was within uh, the, it would never move. Set up and tear down team was done away with, right? And this temple was glorious. And do you know the significance of this temple? The significance of this temple is that this is where the presence of God was with his people. The same as the tabernacle before it. The temple was a visible symbol of God's presence with his people. That's why when they were all out in exile, you had the psalmist saying things like, I want to behold your beauty in your temple. One day in your temple is better than a thousand elsewhere. And some of us are thinking, like, I thought God was everywhere, though, right? What does that mean that his presence is in the temple? Like, isn't God everywhere? Uh, isn't he omnipresent? And, and the answer to that is that, yes, he is everywhere. He is everywhere at all times, but he was uniquely present with his people in the temple. He was present in a covenantal sense, a unique sense in the temple, Think about how, like, the internet is everywhere, right? But then, and Ralph breaks the internet, Ralph and Penelope are, like, uniquely present in the internet, right? They're with the internet. Like, that's kind of like what it's like with the temple, right? That's kind of like what it's like with God. Like, the Bible tells us that all people, every single one of us, whether you're a believer or not, whether you're a God-fearer, a God-lover, or a God-hater, every single person has some strong sense of God in their hearts. We can't deny it. But But it was in the temple that his royal presence dwelt that his covenantal presence dwelt. You could actually know God personally there, not just generally or vaguely. 
And so what happens, though, is that God's people, true to form, just as humanity goes, David and his sons, rather than honoring God with this temple, they rebel against him. And God promised them, if you forsake me and run after idols, I will allow you to be ransacked. And that's exactly what happens. The kingdom is lost. They're removed from the temple. The temple is destroyed. They're exiled by the Babylonians when they're away from the city for 70 years. And after those seven decades of despair, God in his grace brings a remnant of 50,000 of them, 50,000 of the tribe of Judah. Uh, He brings 50,000 of them back to the city. And the first thing that they do under God's command is to rebuild this temple to rebuild their faith, to come back to God, to return to him and his mission and his priorities. And that's where the book of Haggai begins. That's where this story begins. And the people go in and they start rebuilding. But then we saw in the first week of Haggai chapter 1, we saw that there was this group of critics, these haters, these Samaritans. You've heard of the good Samaritan, right? Well, these were like the bad Samaritans. And they start threatening uh, God's people, and the remnant sort of chickens out and says, you know, following God's kind of hard when you got people that disagree with you and that are criticizing you. Following God can get pretty hard, and so we're just going to sort of take care of ourselves from now on, and, and, and we'll do like churchy things sometimes, but, but for the most part, we're just going to take care of our, our, our own interests, our own priorities, our own kingdoms, and that's not unlike American Christianity today. And so God in his mercy raises up a prophet and sends that prophet in by the name of Haggai. And Haggai comes in to challenge the people. Hey, your priorities are out of whack. You guys need to remember what God did for you to bring you back to this moment, to rebuild your faith, to rebuild the temple. And so they start the work back up. Then a few weeks later, they get discouraged. They're like, man, this isn't turning out like the old temple. And, and they're just kind of feeling lame about themselves. And so Haggai, by the grace of God, comes in again with a word of encouragement from the Lord. And so they get back at it. But then somehow, in the process of serving God and rebuilding the temple, they convince themselves that all their religious traditions and religious activity would be what earns God's favor. And so Haggai comes in to correct their bad doctrine. He comes in to correct this dangerous belief that just because you do religious things, that doesn't make you holy. In fact, because they were so unclean and depraved on the inside, even their shiny religious works on the outside were unclean too. That was the message in Haggai chapter 2 in the beginning. And so what they needed was a heart transformation, a cleansing, a making new from the inside out, which, by the way, is what we celebrate at baptism. Baptism is for those who have said, God has done that for me. I used to live this way. I used to have these priorities, but God has done a work in my life. He's made me new, and I am dead to my old self. I'm alive to my new self, and now I want to walk by the Spirit in newness of life. In the beginning of Haggai chapter 2, God says, look, only I can do this for you. Only I can do this inside-out sort of transformation. Your traditions can't save you. 
Your traditions can't earn me your favor. Your religious fervor and activity is worth nothing because of how dirty you are on the inside. But God in his grace says, I'll take care of that for you. And so God promises to change their hearts and to bring them blessing, not because they're so great and earned it, but because he's so gracious and is good on his word. The word he gave to Eve in the garden, the word he gave to Abraham, the word he gave to, to Moses and to David through his descendants. God is good on his word. And that's where we left off last week. And so this morning, I want us to look at the four final verses of the book of Haggai and tie a bow on this whole thing to see how this small book is a big gift to us with huge implications for the church today. So begin reading with me in verse 20 of Haggai chapter 2. Haggai 2 verse 20 says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. And so, so this fourth word from Haggai, this is the fourth message that he's giving the, peop- the people uh, in this book, but it's the second word on this particular day. So the verses we went, uh, went through Last week happened earlier in the day, and then later on in the day, uh, this fourth message from Haggai comes uh, uh, in, in verses 20 through 23, but this time it's different. This time, Haggai's word from the Lord uh, curiously zeroes in on one particular person, Zerubbabel. You see, all the messages prior were given to all the people, but this message was given to Zerubbabel. And so here's the message that Haggai has for Zerubbabel. He he tells Haggai in verse 21, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. And this is the first point I want us to see this morning, is that God promises to wield his power. God promises to wield his power. The Lord says in verse 21, he will shake the heavens and the earth. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? You see, God is reminding them of how big he is, how powerful he really is. Now that the rebooting of the temple had started, the next natural question was, Lord, you you brought us here. You're you're doing this temple thing again, but, but will you restore our kingdom? That was the next natural question for them. Will you restore the kingdom of Israel? Sure, you brought us back to the land, but what about our enemies? What about those Samaritans and and, and the Persian Empire? What about the despair that we see going on in the world? You see, the idea of shaking that we see in the Old Testament was a common metaphor in the old scriptures to describe just when when someone has complete sovereign control. Right? Think about it. You can't shake something unless you're actually like bigger and stronger than it, right? Like you can't shake something bigger than you like a polar ice cap, but you could shake a Polaroid picture. You could shake, shake, shake it, right? You also can't shake something once unless it's in your possession, unless you own it. It's in your hands. It's in your possession. Like, I can't shake your hand, or I can shake your hand, but not if it's in your pocket, right? You have to extend your hand. I have to take it. It has to be in my possession. So when the Lord says to Zerubbabel, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, that's a way of, of the Lord saying, reminding to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm still in control. 
I'm still the sovereign Lord. I know it's crazy out there, but I'm still in charge and I still got you. Maybe you need that encouragement this morning. Maybe you need that encouragement this morning. I know things are nuts. I know things are crazy and wild right now, but I still got you, says the Lord. Bible scholars will point out this sort of subversive irony sort of hidden in the text here. You look back to the very first verse uh, written in Haggai chapter 1, which says at the very beginning of this book, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So when did this happen? When did this, all of this happen? It, it happened in the second year of Darius the king. You see, back then they told time in relation to the king who was reigning at the moment. And then here, in these final verses, we learn that even the mighty king Darius wields a power that does not last. What are the powers at work right now to sort of discourage you? What are the powers at work in your life right now that incite fear or shame or embarrassment? Maybe it's people that come to mind. Maybe it's people in your life that do that. Maybe it's just the political climate that we're in. What's going on in the world. Maybe it's just a season of life right now that's just weighing you down. Maybe this morning, God wants to awaken you to the reality that in Christ, the powers that seem to weigh you down aren't as strong as you think aren't as big as you think, aren't as sovereign as they feel. But God, He's strong. He's mighty. He is the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and of earth. He's the God of the temple, their covenant God. He's the king of all kings. He is the one who shakes the heavens and the earth and overthrows the kingdoms of earth. Do you find your strength in him this morning? Is his power, is his bigness, is his greatness, is his sovereignty a comfort for you this morning? Maybe the Lord wants to awaken you to the reality that he's big, that he's in control, and that he's got you. The second point we see in this text is not only that God wields his power, but he actually wields his power to bring us peace. He wields his power to bring us peace. We see this in verse 22 when, it, when, it says, uh, when he says, I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down everyone by the sword of his brother. Uh, see, in this verse, God is doubling down on that same comforting truth that every authority, every principality, every power that sets itself up against the Lord and against his his children are no match for him. They're no match for him. 
there's this imagery here of anarchy and military confusion where, where, where God says that all of their enemies will fall by the sword, he says, of their own brother. And th- that language, those phrases would sort of evoke this vivid imagery for God's people that they had from their own history that we read about in Judges and 1 Samuel and 2 Chronicles, among other places, where God did exactly that. He took care of his people. He protected his people. He smited their enemies, not, not by helping his people sort of flex their own like political military might, but by taking care of it, taking care of their enemies without any of their involvement, without any of their help. He had their enemies destroy each other. See, this is all a reminder of the peace that that God will provide for them. This reminder that he's in control, that he's sovereign, that he'll, he'll take care of it. All of this was a reminder that God is after their peace. Peace in the world, goodwill towards all men. Just when they're feeling like things are so crazy out there, enemies, their enemies could close in at any second, God says, no, I got you. I'm here to bring you peace. I'm here to make you at peace. And I think deep down, we all long for that. Deep down, we, we all long for that. We all long for a world marked by the perfect peace of God. If you belong to Jesus this morning, you need to know that God wields his power to bring you peace. And that, that is remarkable, right? Like God doesn't owe us that. He's God. He could just be God and just, just, just leave us in our sin and in our rebellion, leave the world to, to destroy itself. But he doesn't owe us any involvement on his end. He doesn't need us, right? He's not lonely. He is complete. He is sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't owe us anything. He could just flex his power over all evil, sin, and death and leave us out of it. But no, this this verse reminds us that he is after us. Our God is a covenant God. Our God is a God who loves, a God who pursues, not because he needs us, but just as an overflow of his loving nature and kindness. And so he fights for us. As we sang earlier, he goes to war for our peace. You see, in a very real sense, the coming of Jesus, the Christmas season, Jesus' coming is God waging war against all that is not right in the world. I'll talk to uh, some like my, my atheist and skeptic friends sometimes, and, and this, this, they, they'll, a lot of times they'll, they'll sort of drop this, this, this phrase or this question that they feel sort of like they're ace of spades, right? Like they're, they're oh, I got you with this one. And they'll ask, you know, like if, if, if God loves uh, his people so much, then like why are, why, are, why are things so broken, right? Why is there just why is this world just so crappy, so twisted, just so so tainted and broken? Where is God? Why doesn't he do anything about it? To which I point out to them and, and re- respond like he did do something about it. 
That's why Jesus came. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's the whole point of God coming down, taking on human flesh, living the perfect life that we could never live, dying in our place for our sins, and rising from the grave in triumphant victory over all evil, sin, and death. He came to make all things new. That's the point of Christ. They ask, where is your God? My response, on a throne. You see, the whole human race has this deep memory, this gnawing in us that, 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 that some, some good that we long for has been lost. The whole human race has a deep memory of a paradise that is lost, a haunting awareness that there's got to be something more to this. A better world that we were created for. That's why evil and suffering gets at us. That's why it bugs us. That's why we say things like, man, this, things don't seem like the way they're supposed to be. C.S. Lewis once said that heaven is that remote music that we are all born remembering. It's like this, this song that we, 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 all, we all know the words to. We all know the sound of because we're made for it. We're all haunted by this inner longing for peace that only Jesus can bring. Look at this promise from, from Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 27, when he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled not to let them be afraid. Do you know Jesus this morning? Then don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Know that God wields his great power, the power he has to shake the heavens and the earth. He wields that for you, for your peace. And lastly, number three, we see that God promises his powerful presence. He promises his powerful presence both in and through his people. Where do we see that? The very last verse, when it says, On that day, on, on, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, if you moved through these words too quickly, you might miss how profound this promise is that's being made here. This last verse in the book of Haggai is the most powerful, hope-filled promise that Haggai could have possibly ended with. Remember the promise that was made to David that we talked about in our intro, the promise that was made to David that someone from his bloodline, from David's bloodline, would be the once and for all king of all kings to bring the presence of God back to the people? I mean, that was the cornerstone of the covenant that, that God made with David, that one of his descendants would be the once and for all king of all kings. But then, as we talked about, David and his sons, they blew it. 
They blew it. Instead of reflecting God's glory, they rebelled against him. And so God opened the door for the Babylonians to come in and to take his people away for 70 years. And here they are, after those 70 years, back in the land, rebuilding the temple. But that question, that question looms in the background. Is God still for us? Is he still a God of mercy? Is what he said to David still good for us? After all these decades, will he still come through on his covenant even though we we blew it? Did our exile mess things up? (coughs) And so all eyes, all eyes, all 50,000 pairs of eyes of the remnant that came back, all eyes are on Zerubbabel their governor. Why? What is his significance? It's because he's a descendant of David. He was the one among them who was a descendant of David. Now, he's not a king like David because the Persian Empire was in charge at this time, but he's been granted the role of governor, and he's still, in the truest sense, a descendant of David. And so with those questions looming in the background, is God still for us? Is, is his promise that he made to David and his descendants still good on us? It's with those questions looming in the background that I want you to read that last verse again and feel the gravity of it. Feel how powerful this promise must have been to Zerubbabel and the people. When Haggai says... The Lord declares, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Notice how he piles on these powerful words of grace. These powerful words of divine selection where God says to Zerubbabel, I will take you. You are my servants. I have chosen you. I mean, the Lord couldn't make it any clearer. He's saying, we're doing this. This, my promise, my covenant still stands. I'm, we're, we're doing this, people. We're doing this, Zerubbabel. Do you have any idea how powerful this statement must have been for them? After 70 years in exile, coming back to rebuild the temple and being told again and again that they keep screwing up, that their hearts aren't in the right place, that they're unclean, that they're too discouraged, that their priorities are out of whack. And in the background, they're wondering, like, man, is, just, is God just ticked at us? This great promise that he made to our, to our former the, the king that he made to David, that he made to our father before him, Abraham, are those promises still good for us? And then you have this statement made to their governor, I will take you, you're my servant, I have chosen you. Do you have any idea how powerful the words in this last verse must have been for them? This was a sign of God's covenant love. This was more than just mercy. 
This was more than just forgiveness. This was more than just God bringing them back and relocating them. This is the restoration of the presence of God with his people. This is God saying to all of them that under Zerubbabel's leadership, I've led my people out of Babylon, but now I will lead them back to me. And look at this. He says, I will make you like a signet ring. Now, what's that? What's a signet ring? You think back to those like movies or storybooks that you read when you were a kid where you'd have like this king that has this sort of sign of authority. Like maybe it's on his ring or on a necklace around his, his, his neck and with a sort of a, a, an emblem engraved into it. Whenever a decree would go out from the king, what they would do is they'd take the letter and they'd do the, the wax seal thing on the letter and then they, the king would press his signet ring into it so that everyone knew that this message came with his authority. Everyone knew that, that this could be traced back to him. That's profound. Uh, a few days ago, um, we we did what most families um, probably should have been doing. We we watched Home Alone in our house, uh, and uh, dude, I forgot like what a great movie that is, uh, Home Alone. But we we really uh, we we enjoyed. It. We watched it together as a family, and um, we did the most appropriate thing that you could do after watching Home Alone. Um, we watched Home Alone too. <clears throat> And if those of you that have seen Home Alone 2, you know that like uh, that, 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 that they actually remember to bring Kevin uh, with them on this vacation into the airport, but then they lose him. And they go to Florida, and Kevin McAllister ends up in New York. And the way that they find out where he is, because they're like, he could be anywhere. They lost him at the airport. He's not at home. He's not at the airport that they departed from. He could be anywhere in the world. And the way that they found him was through his dad's credit card. Remember that? Because he had his dad's credit card with him, and he, 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 he was using it for, to check into a room in New York. He got like $967 of room service. Uh, and, and so they, they, call, they call the family while they're back in, in Florida, and they say, hey, we found your son. He's in New York, and we know that because of your credit card. Kevin was using this credit card as a sign of his father's authority, getting into whatever room that he wanted, ordering whatever kind of room and room service that, 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 that he wanted, and they were able to find him and connect him with his dad because of this credit card. His credit card was a way of saying, look, this is from my dad. A signet ring is kind of like that. <laughs> It's, it's, it's got that, that, that weight of importance to it. Like you don't, you, the, the reason you don't want to lose your credit card is because of the consequences of that. You don't lose a signet ring because of the consequences it would have for that. The signet ring was a sign of your authority. It was a way of saying, this is from the king. And so this is profound when the Lord says to Zerubbabel, I will make you 
like a signet ring. Like my signet ring. I have chosen you for my signet ring. I mean, we saw in Genesis when Pharaoh gives his signet ring to Joseph. And you, you're, when you're reading that in Genesis, you're like, dude, that's wild. Joseph, this guy, he, he worked his way up the ladder and Pharaoh gives him his sign of authority, his signet ring. And when we read that in Genesis, we're like, oh, that's crazy. But here God says to Zerubbabel, God says to a man, you will be that for me. God says to a man, I have chosen you. You will be my signet ring. I will extend my authority through you. What has he chose Zerubbabel for? To lead his people in rebuilding their faith, in rebuilding the temple, in regaining God's presence, and in being a light to the world. That was the point of the temple. This moment, This statement, this promise, this great promise to Zerubbabel is the restoration of the close relationship between God and his people. You see, there's a reason that God had called his people to rebuild the temple. Do you remember what the role of the temple is? We mentioned earlier, it's the temple was like the tabernacle before it. It was a visible symbol of God's dwelling among his people. It was from the temple in Jerusalem that they would also be a light to the world through their worship. They would make God known. Today, the visible symbol of God's presence with his people is no longer the temple. It's not even a church building. It's not a collection of traditions It's not uh, a place or location. No, the visible symbol of God's presence with his people is no longer the temple. It's Jesus himself. Jesus, who was a descendant of David. Jesus, who was a descendant of Zerubbabel. You see, God gives Zerubbabel this promise. You're going to be like my signet ring. I'm not going back on my covenant to you, the covenant that I made to your father, David. We're doing this. This is, this is still going to unfold the way that I promised it. And that promise made to Zerubbabel in the very last verse would eventually unravel and unfold in the coming of King Jesus. They call Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. No longer a tabernacle, no longer a temple, no longer a system of traditions and sacrifices and a priesthood, but God with us, Jesus, Christ alone. Do you see the beauty of God's word in the book of Haggai? Do you see the beauty of his power in the gospel story? That the whole point of the temple and the house of God was to point forward to the greater temple. In John chapter 2, Jesus says that he is that temple. And what's wild is the story doesn't even end there, does it? 
No, it doesn't even end there. Now that Jesus has poured out his spirit upon his church at Pentecost, God's presence is now represented on earth by what? By the church. By us. We are the visible representation now of God's presence. Christ in us is the hope of glory. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. We, the church, is the temple of the living God now. God's glory no longer shines through a place, but through a person, Jesus, and through his people, the church. As the body of Christ, we are the new temple. We are God's dwelling place. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, he doubles down on this idea, and he says, this is the words of Jesus to us. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the one who can shake the heavens and the earth. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then with that authority, what does Jesus say? He says, go therefore. Go therefore. Because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, now I'm telling you with that authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. In a sense, because of these verses, we could say that the signet ring of the Lord is now given to the church. Jesus says, I have all authority. I have all the authority. I can shake the heavens and the earth. I have all the authority of heaven and on earth. What does he do with that authority? The very next words, go therefore. Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Trinity. See, the church is a signet ring of the Lord. That's wild. That's wild that God would choose to invite us to participate in his sovereign work. Look at these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. When Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The authority of the Lord, the signet ring of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is your seal, is your guarantee. This is why God calls us elsewhere his ambassadors. We are called God's ambassadors, living in that spirit for the glory of God and the good of others and making disciples that do the same. If you're the follower of Jesus this morning, then that is your mission. That is the mission of the church. 
That's why when we do baptism, it's not practiced privately. It's practiced in the context of a local church. That's why we call baptism, baptism celebration, and invite the whole church to participate. Because not only is it an opportunity for those of you getting baptized to publicly pro- proclaim through baptism what Jesus has done in your life, it's also an opportunity for us as a church to say, we affirm what we've seen God do in your life. Baptism is into the local church. It's done in the context of a local church. The congregation affirms the work of God that has happened in the lives of those getting baptized. Go, therefore, Jesus says, make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you to. That is our mission, King's Cross to make disciples. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're still sort of checking this, this whole Jesus thing out. The good news in this scripture is that God is good on his promises. In Jesus, he promises peace, love, comfort, salvation for all who repent and come to faith in him. You don't have to do anything to get your your way in. You bring nothing to the table other than your need for his grace. And that same powerful voice that spoke a word of comfort to Zerubbabel and to God's people through Haggai is the same voice that invites us, come. Follow me. I will give you rest. I will give you peace. And I will make you new. That is the mission of our church. Is to have as many people as possible come to grips with that promise and believe. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.